Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the 1986 Chernobyl disaster, in which the reactor number four of the Chernobyl power plant suffered a full meltdown and explosion. This resulted in the worst nuclear disaster in history, both in terms of cost and the number of lives impacted. This is episode two of a two-part series. Uh, Make sure you go back and listen to the first one. (laughs) Last time, we covered a very questionable explanation of how nuclear fission works. Hopefully, in the meantime, you've watched a video on how it properly works. But we also covered the background to the reactor, we covered the test itself and what, what kind of led up to the explosion the explosion and then we started covering the cleanup operation uh, so if you start it now and you don't listen to the first one i mean it will make sense but it won't have any context so i would go back and do that whilst i'm here chatting reminder to follow me on instagram at when it goes wrong pod and reminder to tell someone about the podcast that's all i ask just tell tell a pal and yeah that'll be nice <laughs> Cool. So let's get back into the cleanup. So 32 hours after the actual accident itself, it was finally confirmed that Pripyat was to be evacuated. Um, and so emergency proclamations went out over all of the tannoys on the, in the city. Reminder that quotes in this episode, which I have more quotes in this one than the first one, uh, quotes all come from the book Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham, which I'll talk more about later on. But, gosh, this is going to be another long one. Um, yes, so the, the proclamation that went out said, attention, attention, the City Council of People's Deputies would like to inform you that due to an accident at Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the city of Pripyat, adverse radiation conditions are developing. Necessary measures are being taken by the party and Soviet organisations and the armed forces. However, in order to ensure complete safety for the people, and most importantly, the children, conducting a temporary evacuation of city residents to nearby localities in Kiev region has become necessary. We ask that you remain calm, be organised and maintain order during this temporary evacuation. Juniper's come to visit. Hello. She's much bigger now. If you remember her from previous, previous podcasts, she's now a big, a big fluffy cat and she has no coordination. Um, So, yes, there were, so they decided to fully evacuate the city, finally, even though they've basically all been irradiated for however many days. Um, And they told all the people that they were only going to be gone for three days. So only to take like the bare minimum of uh, like their documents and like a few clothes and not a lot, basically. And there were 1,225 buses in total, and they basically uh, shipped everyone off and emptied the city. Uh, and they were all sent to, to like farms and other places around around the country. A lot of people tried to go back and, and see and live with the other family. Um, but yes, it was fully evacuated. Sadly, they had to leave all their animals behind and all the animals were destroyed uh, They because they were dangerously radiated as all the people were. Um, but they had a lot of like radioactive dust on their fur and they didn't want that to, to travel. So yeah, that was really tragic. And if you talk about it later, but if you rewatch Chernobyl, um, there is far too long of them going and killing dogs. So don't watch that, that bit of it. Um, soon after that ex- um, evacuation, they also did a 30 kilometer exclusion zone uh, where they removed everyone. 
they finally had done that. If we think about what was happening internationally at this time and also further further across the USSR, it took almost three days for something to actually be acknowledged to anyone in the outside world. Um, and so it was shown on the TV in the Soviet Union um, and released internationally, but they included no pictures, they included no real details. They just kind of said, oh, there's been an accident, but nothing in reality. They were, by this point, tracking a cloud of radioactivity, so the kind of the cloud that had exploded on it, and they were monitoring that as it spread uh, around the world. And obviously, wherever it went, it released a load of radiation. And this was really how the outside world kind of found out about it, because um, in Scandinavia, I think it was in Sweden, um, they were in one of their nuclear power plants, something like Everyone kept setting off all of the like, re, like the radioactive detectors um, that they had to go through when they went in and out of sight, and they were like, "Wow, God! Like, has something happened in our in our um, power plant?" And and that's the reason why we're all suddenly radioactive. But in reality, all of this radioactive uh, particles were being blown in, and they were would have potentially an impact on many people um, who were around in 1986. So that was how the outside world began to find out. And, you know, over time, more and more details were were released. Alongside this, in the wider context, um, there were very questionable actions from the party. So there was an annual May Day parade, and there's one to be held in Kiev just a couple of days after um, the incident. And the thing is, is that generally you want to stay inside when radiation has been been released. You know, you want to be like in a bunker waiting for it to pass type thing. Uh, but they didn't tell anyone that, that there was any risk. And so people went out to celebrate this May Day parade because they didn't want to seem like they had done anything wrong. So yeah, pe- people like flooded the streets in this like horrible, dangerous radiation, which is awful. And then the cloud continued to be tracked. And there was this quote in this book, which, um, which amazed me, which says, Later, when the wind changed direction again, threatening to carry the plume of radionuclides north towards Moscow, Soviet pilots flew repeated missions to seed the clouds with silver iodine, designed to precipitate moisture from the air. The capital was spared, but 300 kilometres to the south, peasants watched as hundreds of square kilometres of fertile farmland in Belarus were lashed with black rain. And that shocked me for two reasons. One, I didn't know we could make it rain. Do do other people know that? Is that a common knowledge thing? Because I didn't. And that's, I mean, obviously not in this case, but that is cool that we can do that. And then two, awful. I mean, they clearly um, had their priorities, right, as to to where they wanted to make sure didn't get the radiation. So yeah, not, not ideal. Uh, If we zoom back now into what was happening with Chernobyl, so obviously the imminent threat had had passed, thankfully, uh, but there was still a lot of cleanup to do. So what they needed to do was when the uh, reactor exploded, a lot of the, the bits of the reactor itself had obviously like exploded out and then was like landed on the on the roof so it was like three roofs and the uh the radioactive material was on these roofs and what they ideally needed to do was to push that debris back into the reactor itself because that that debris was super radioactive and if they wanted to to try and you know build something over the whole thing and then they really needed to try and get that radioactive material as far away from people as possible 
But um, so they had decided that they would build a large sarcophagus over the entire entirety of, of, of reactor number four, and that would uh, be built to kind of keep the building covered and, and stop the, the continuing radiation escaping. But to get rid of that debris in order to start building the sarcophagus was really hard. And so they originally wanted to use robots, um, which they thought could go in sweep it off no impact but this didn't really work in large quantities uh, mainly due to the radiation due to the fact that the terrain on the roofs was very uh, quite difficult for the robots to to cover as i mean it was 1986 um, the robots weren't weren't as good as what we've got now and they had quite like low batteries and so what they decided to use was what they would call bio robots shock horror people um and they shipped tens of thousands of men in and all basically did their job for like two minutes they had like they ran up to the roof they shoveled like a piece of debris off they ran back and that was it they were paid and shipped back off to their lives um with the hope that they would have no long-term impacts Alongside these people working directly kind of in the power plant, uh, there were lots of people also working in Pripyat and, and, the, and the exclusion zone to try and, and, and hide or remove as much uh, radiation as they could. So they tried to clean everything. Uh, they removed lots of st- stuff. They buried a lot of things. The city was kind of sprayed with water um, and they turned over a lot of topsoil and, and buried it further under the ground to, to try and reduce the radiation. Uh, as I mentioned, they killed, hunted and killed all of the animals that they could find. Um, and a lot of times they, they um, pulled up and buried plants um, and trees. And these people that were involved in this were given medals and they were, were known colloquially as the liquidators. Within 24 days after the incident, uh, the design of the sarcophagus was created uh, and the sarcophagus was built over reactor number four between June and November. So it took quite a long time, but they managed to get it up pretty quickly um, and that covered the reactor and the reactor hall um, and really helped reduce the amount of radiation continuing to be released into the environment because, let me tell you, radiation lasts a really long time. Um, And so they, but during this, uh, they did like a little little experiment, a little adventure um, to see what kind of happened actually within the reactor and what happened with like the fuel. Um, And so they used cameras, they kind of like pumped cameras in to see what was going on. And there was, they did, it was weird. Like they found these like huge masses of crystallized uranium and sand, which were all like still boiling hot, but had like created these like weird shapes. Um, And there's one called the elephant's foot, which is like this giant mass that they found of kind of crystallized uh, nuclear fuel. But they did by seeing this see that um, that another explosion was was very unlikely. So that was good. Then what I found shocking, but I mean, most of this is shocking. But what I found shocking at this point is that it, this was reactor number four. The other three reactors continued to work and be run for many years afterwards. So literally you have like a destroyed reactor in one corner and the other three are like, well, may as well keep going. Um, and some of them only closed like in like the late 90s, like 90s. 697 so they ran for like 10 years after and i can only imagine like surely that was very dangerous for the reactor operators of the other ones <laughs> it just doesn't seem real but clearly you know they needed the power right
about the human impact, which we haven't covered much so far. So like we said in the last episode, when the core blew, they didn't know that it had and they didn't really believe that it had. And that meant that there was no adequate protection from the radiation in any form for most of the beginning of the incident. And so uh, they estimated that two men were killed kind of on impact of the explosion. So one who was near the reactor and their body was never found um, and one who was directly kind of injured by heat and fire as a result of it. It's then thought that... 237 people had acute radiation sickness um, or acute radiation syndrome uh, from the radiation directly after the accident. And of this, 31 people died uh, of, of acute radiation sickness very soon after. And that included um, Akimov, who we mentioned earlier, who was in the in the control room, and two others um, who went out and tried to to release the valve. Uh, it included many of the operators who were on site, and it included lots of the first responders, including many of those initial firefighters who uh, went and put out the fires when they didn't really know what was happening. And sadly, all of these men were buried in lead-lined coffins uh, because they were just literally so radioactive um, that they couldn't be buried anywhere else. And so just to talk a bit more about like acute radiation, I keep calling it acute radiation sickness. It is officially acute radiation syndrome, but I'm sure people say sickness, um, but ARS. And so I think ARS is really horrific and really terrifying because it impacts in a way where you don't really like feel it. And in many cases, you you might not feel it at, at all. You might feel something kind of a little bit, but in a lot of cases, you don't notice anything. And the, the book says, uh, the radiation exposure responsible for causing ARS may be over in a few seconds and unaccompanied by any initial reaction, but its destructive effects begin immediately as the high energy rays and particles of alpha, beta and gamma radiation snap strands of DNA and the exposed cells start to die. And I find that I just, it's one I'm, as we, as we learned from last time, I'm not very good at physics, but I just, it like blows my mind what is happening to you because like, you're being destroyed from like your most tiniest level, if that makes sense. Like, and that just seems really weird that you you just get blasted with something and it just eats you basically from from literally within your very being and your DNA. And that, yeah, just is awful. And so if it is like a humongous dose, um, so those that were there like very near the core, uh, they'll feel it immediately. They might feel like burnt or very hot on the skin because they basically get radiation burns. Uh, they'll often vomit and have uh, nauseal gastroenteritis type symptoms because it's all to do with like you get more impacted in the areas that have like a higher cell turnover. So um, within your gut um, and your skin, um, you'll often get headache and faint. Um, in some cases, you won't feel anything. Like I said at the beginning, it will kind of come on slowly over over coming days, and there's just not much you can do about it, which is also awful. So in in very bad cases, is all is always lethal, um, and it will. But it might take several days for that person to die. And the tragic bit, what I find a very tragic bit, is that you kind of get very sick, but then you almost seem to have this like period of remission in a lot of cases where you seem to be getting better and you'll start feeling better and kind of going back to normal. And then you get much worse and die. So it just seems even more unfair um, to, to kind of be like, oh yeah, it's fine. And they'd be like, oh no. 
but you you can if the if the impact isn't too high you can um recover as we you know if they had 237 people and only 31 died most of them did recover uh, but yeah they can't do huge amounts of treatment uh, but they can so let me rewind. Um, often people will die because uh, your immune system dies because your bone marrow fails um, and that, that has quite a high turnover. So it gets impacted quite soon. And so um, that, that is eventually what kills you. Uh, and so in terms of treatment, you sometimes can survive if you have a bone marrow transplant. So you get given fresh bone marrow uh, and, then, and then your immune system comes back. Um, they also have like some other types of treatment. So they can give iodine, uh, which tries to kind of protect the thyroid. Um, and then they just give treatment to, to basically address individual problems. So dehydration burns, all of that type of thing to, to make someone comfortable as they go through it. And yeah, the person may recover at any point, but equally may not. And then the worst bit is, yeah, even if, no, not the worst bit, but another wor- another bad thing in, along with radiation is that if the ARS doesn't happen, uh, but being irradiated does, it obviously gives you a much larger chance of getting cancer in the future. So same way as, you know, wear your SPF because you're getting basically slowly but surely irradiated by the sun. Uh, this is the same concept. So you will have a much higher chance of getting things like leukemia due to bone marrow issues, thyroid cancer, skin cancer, anything like that. So it it's really hard to know what the actual impact of Chernobyl was. You know, when you actually look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, this like explosion, only 31 people died. Like that is relatively a low number for, for the kind of catastrophe that it was. But that is because it's really hard to track and understand the impact that this had not only on the people that were relatively close to Chernobyl but the people that were potentially irradiated by the cloud that traveled over Europe um, and then not only just on those people but also potentially on their offspring because um, if you do get DNA damage and then you have a child there's a potential that you've passed on that DNA damage. Yeah, they they figure that stuff up out through like epidemiology, uh, which is obviously like the study of uh, disease and disease movement. And there have been some studies where they have kind of positively concluded that some that things like thyroid cancer did increase in the uh, the the time after the incident, but. It's really hard to set to, to know and to say, especially because, you know, it was still the USSR after this. So there wasn't huge amounts of record keeping. It was potentially in areas that didn't really capture a lot of data. And so it, it's very hard to say really what the human impact was. Uh, some figures had it at around 4,000 people um, who likely had a shortened lifespan due to Chernobyl. Uh, but others go to like way higher levels, you know, some with 20,000. I mean, I read one with like 200,000 people that they think it impacted. So it's really hard to know, but we do know that it had a big impact both um, immediately and uh, on, on people in the area and, and f- going forward. So in terms of then the legal ramifications of what happened... Following the incident, they um, uh, uh, commissioned an official report. And the first one, which was called INSAG-1, was done in 1986. And this report put basically all the blame on the the operators of the plant and those that were in the control room. It stated that they removed the emergency controls before um, the test was run, which was what they expected to do. Um, And it basically said that the people who were involved weren't trained, they weren't competent enough. um, And it was, yeah, basically put all of the blame on them, which very questionable. Um, 
and because that was what it did and what it came out with, uh, that position was something that was very heavily held uh, by the public um, all, all across the globe. People basically just continued to blame it on those people that were operating the, the reactor at the time. And due to, to, to this, this founding and to uh, the opinions of people at the time, it led to a trial. And this trial was in July 7, 1987, uh, for many of those people that were working at the time. So it included Dyatlov, who was the the shift supervisor, um, Brukhanov, who was the man that created and built the power plants, and then four others who all had leading roles in the incident. Um, There were three other people in the control room as well, but they had already died of ARS and were not prosecuted. And really, what actually happened in the trial was hard to know. Uh, The case itself was hard to cover because journalists were only invited uh, to the opening and closing of the day when pre-prepared statements were read. So very much still uh, a secret, secret squirrel. It seems from the reports that we have that a lot of them kind of blamed each other but also blamed the reactor of the design. And Dyatlov seemed to be the one who actually got it the most. And he, there was a quote that said, uh, Dyatlov contended that the Chernobyl operators bore no blame for what had happened to reactor number four and addressed in detail every one of the charges brought against him. He said the responsibility for the accident rested with those who had failed to warn the plant staff that they were operating a potentially explosive reactor and that he personally had given no instructions which violated any regulations. And... I mean, we we know that that was pretty much all true, right? We know that the reactor was the the reactor design was by far the the issue that was going on, combined yes with some operator um, error, but yeah, he he definitely had it right. But it really became clear that the defendants weren't going to be listened to at all in this case, um, nor really any evidence of theirs considered. And this was really what I like. It was really a show trial, right? It was, you know, yes, it was a judge, but the judge was just doing what the party said. And the party wanted these people to be found guilty. And therefore they were. Um, so they were all found guilty and sentenced for up to 10 years in labor camps because of their actions. And yeah, it's it was a really, a really tragic outcome, really, because these these people potentially in some small way, but weren't weren't responsible in the way that they think. Following that, they, in 1991, they decided to do a second investigation, and this was called INSAC-7. Um, and this time when they did it, it was after um, the Soviet Union fell in 91. Um, so they had a lot more documentation. They had a lot of kind of classified KGB documentation. And this time, the narrative was very much changed, um, and the blame was put on the design of the reactor, uh, the failings it had, and also... I mentioned it the other day, but this kind of huge impact and strain and like mental load that it caused that the operators needed to have in order to actually operate the reactor itself. Um, And there was another quote in that report that said... (laughs) Thus, the Chernobyl accident comes within the standard pattern of the most severe accidents in the world. It begins with an accumulation of small breaches of the regulations. These produce a set of undesirable properties and occurrences that, when taken separately, do not seem to be particularly dangerous. But finally, an initiating event occurs that, in this particular case, was the subjective actions of the personnel that allowed the potentially destructive and dangerous qualities of the reactor to be released. And I thought that that summed it up really well because it it really does show that 
lots of small things, lots of small oversights, lots of questionable design built up, and that built to a position that could then be exploited by the staff to cause such explosion. And actually, I quite like the beginning of that because I think that that is true in a lot of the disasters and accidents that we've talked about. It is this accumulation of small breaches of regulation that produces a set of undesirable properties that, when taken separately, do not seem to be particularly dangerous. And that is so the case, if I think back to some of the some of the things we've done on, like plane crashes or the ships doing crashing, sinking, um, then that, yeah, I think that, that is a really good good way of summing it up. In terms of long-term impacts then following Chernobyl, so the long-term impacts have been considerable, uh, both on the environment near and far. And I found it interesting that the UK, which did get some of the uh, radioactive cloud, was actually still doing checks on grazing animals as lately as 2012. So on the bits of the UK that got irradiated by that cloud, they were still doing checks on those animals to check that they weren't having high levels of radiation that far in the future, because that is how long radiation can actually hang around for. And so you can understand if that was the impact that the UK was doing, being however far away from from the Ukraine what that impact really had across all of Europe and probably for all of us that have been in Europe or the UK, Europe and the UK um, for, for the last, you know, since 1986, probably all of us have had some form of radioactive impact as a result of Chernobyl. Alongside this, there were huge impacts in the USSR um, and huge financial impacts. So there was a good quote which said, the price for the construction and operation of the sarcophagus alone was 4 billion rubles, or almost $5.5 billion. One estimate put the eventual bill for all aspects of the disaster at more than $128 billion, equivalent to the total Soviet defence budget for 1989. The bleeding was slow, but proved impossible to staunch. One more open wound that the state could no longer shrug off as the Soviet colossus sank slowly to its knees. So undoubtedly, you know, the Soviet Union continued until 91, where it, where it broke up. But, you know, this was definitely something that hugely impacted <laughs> impacted uh, the Soviets and how, how the state was run um, and, you know, potentially was, was a contributing factor to that decline. Chernobyl also had a really big impact on the kind of view of nuclear power elsewhere in the world. Uh, so following Chernobyl, Sweden, Denmark, Austria, the Philippines and New Zealand all pledged to permanently abandon their nuclear power programs. And many other countries cancelled or delayed building more plants, including the US. And as someone that grew up in New Zealand, there is a huge anti-nuclear movement still in New Zealand to, to this day and they're very much against doing any form of nuclear power. And I have to say that I believed believed it 100% when I when I lived there that, that nuclear was, was awful. And I still think that nuclear probably isn't the best option, but I do think 
potentially when you compare it to some other options for the for the sheer amount of power it can produce it it, it potentially is a is an option that should be considered but yeah it very much changed i think the ethos and the and the the thought of many people and especially a lot of people in new zealand and it was only since i left new zealand that i realized its kind of prevalence and and what it could do and yeah even now like in the uk when i get the train up to manchester and you you go past a few nuclear power plants and you're like oh yeah um because i think if you're like me (laughs) in new zealand the only exposure i had to it was like homer simpson and the simpsons right like working in his nuclear power plant and dropping his uranium rods which yeah definitely um not ideal so yeah that that was very interesting and and you know there has definitely now been a rise in nuclear power around the world um and in the uk with with obviously hinkley point being built at the moment so yeah it it, i think it very much changed the view of nuclear power because of the huge impact that it had when it did go wrong and i hope i mean we'll talk about it in lessons learned but i hope that it did cause it to become a safer industry um because that's all we can hope out of these things right following that they eventually did build a new sarcophagus as well uh, to replace the old one that was built in 86 uh, so that was finally finished in 2016 2017 it took years and years they were funding it from about 2000 onwards um, and it was it's called the new safe confinement and that is due to last the next 100 years um, and that replaced some of the kind of crumbling bits of the old sarcophagus and yeah, it's not, they called it a confinement because that's really all they can do is, is try and confine it in some way. So what kind of happened to Chernobyl itself then? So it's been possible up until the war, which we'll come to, uh, to visit Chernobyl um, as as a tourist. And in 2019, the, the Ukraine kind of announced that Chernobyl was, was open for tourists Um the radiation levels, you know, coming up to like 40 years has, have decreased quite a lot. Um, and so you, you can go and visit it and, and not, not stay there for a long time, but you can go as a tourist and pretty safely visit it. And so you, yeah, they, they put it as, um, something, uh, that you can go along with Pripyat town as well. It's got a lot of kind of rules and restrictions around it. So, you you know, you can control, you have to wear a dosimeter um, as you as you go around. And it's kind of generally agreed that you stick to like specific areas that they know the radiation is less. Uh, there's definitely still kind of radiation hotspots, um, for example, in like the forests where they didn't do as much cleanup compared to the town where they did. Um, and then generally they say, you know, like not to touch things because touching things can, uh, you know, things are radioactive. And if you touch them, it's bad not to, to disrupt dust that type of thing uh, because it will increase the radiation levels around them uh, you're not allowed to drink or eat in the zone um, and some and some things it said it was kind of recommended like where things that you can then get rid of because you don't want to kind of be taking that radiation around with you and it has you know it's since become very famous I think in terms of a, a place to visit if I think of um, I know Top Gear did did a big special there a few years ago which was fascinating and there have been quite a few specials on tv about visiting it i think it was what was it called like bad tourist or weird tourist something like that on netflix where um the guy the kiwi went and visited it as well so yeah there's quite a few um and it was potentially quite a big a big tourist attraction and it seems to be quite eerie of a place to visit because it's it's a place that 
is is frozen in time because they left at that date uh, they left you know a lot of their belongings behind so you get a lot of a kind of feel for what 1986 um ukraine ussr looked like um and it's yeah in this kind of like frozen reality but also it's a place where uh nature has reclaimed a lot of a lot of the the space and has started taking back um the buildings and the area around where it is a lot of um a lot more animals that now live there freely and, and kind of roam the place so yeah fascinating i would have loved to have visited but as we know the ukraine is is not in an ideal space right now so continuing to that, uh, Chernobyl has sadly uh, come back in the news recently. Um, so we know that Russia has now invaded the Ukraine, um, which I just think is awful. The whole thing is really, really sad. And because of the location of where Chernobyl was, it's it's um, in a, quite a strategic place compared to Kiev. And so um, quite early in the war, uh, the Russians wanted to take it and they were able to go near the Belarus border, which is obviously supporting Russia to, to help stockpile supplies. And so in late February of 2022, um, Russia did take Chernobyl and they uh, occupied it uh, as part of their, their plans to um, to try and take the capital uh, they were there and they held it for about five weeks, um, but they did actually end up withdrawing in April. Um, and staff were able to re-enter, um, who were obviously working there to to kind of keep the the levels as as they need to be uh, and continue monitoring. But it was very much reported that um, there was huge amounts of damage done um, by by the the people that were were holding it, um, and that a lot of equipment was damaged, stolen, broken, and also it it re- actually ended up being a lot of increase in radiation because of of the the Russians being there because they'd obviously brought a lot of heavy vehicles they disrupted the soil quite a lot they'd done some digging um and that had to have brought a, a kind of a spike in the radiation levels which yeah isn't isn't good for anyone so yes they did eventually um leave and it is now again being held held by Ukraine but it, you know it, it is clear that it's a it is in a strategic place and it, and it may be a an asset as part of the war um which yeah is just i mean it's tragic it's yeah really really sad um and sad that chernobyl has has come back up so in terms of what we learned i think we learned lots of things thankfully so first of all don't save money when building nuclear things <laughs> spend the money on building lots of containment and lots of safety mechanisms and lots of uh yeah ways to make sure that if it does explode, you are not going to have a huge risk to life, which I think now is very much the case. There's obviously huge amounts of regulations that go in and huge amounts of uh, yeah complexity that goes into building things um, and especially building nuclear power plants. It takes a long time now. It's not like, um, you know, where they were basically had a reactor up per year. Um, it, yeah, it's definitely a much, a much bigger process and much um much bigger way of managing uh, the radiation and, and what it looks like there was again this kind of like build up of small actions which i think is really key and in, in a lot of like i said a lot of the the things we talk about the the need to actually reflect on these small things and realize that they could be part of a much bigger a much bigger incident is really important and then not having this kind of like 
open culture that actually accidents do happen and we should learn from them and do things to prevent them happening again rather than kind of just hiding and pretending that all the things that had happened previously hadn't happened um, because I think if in reality all of the things were acknowledged uh, about about Chernobyl and the accidents that they had had before and the accidents that had happened at other RBMK reactors uh, it very much would have potentially not happened. So yeah lots and lots of things that have changed um it also very sadly gave us a lot of insight into the impacts of radiation uh things on you know on treating things like um acute radiation sickness and also the impacts on on the environment uh, and how to manage those so a lot came out of it but like all of these like every single thing we talk about you don't necessarily want want the accident in the first place in order to learn those things so let's move on to references so i mentioned it a few times but I really want to recommend the book Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. Uh, it's really good. It's really detailed. Um, like I said, I found when I picked Chernobyl, I, you know, I've always known I wanted to cover it. and I, But there's almost just too much stuff out there and like so much stuff that, I don't know, concentrates on like weird aspects of it or just is like one page of like, here's an overview of Chernobyl, but doesn't like get into it. And so... That, that book is really good because I just think it goes to the right level of detail in all aspects. It covers, you know, the people, the the long-term impacts, what happened on the day, the build-up, the trial. It covers that in a lot of detail and kind of what happened next. So I, I do really recommend it. It's written in a, you know, in a good way. It's it's one of those uh, non-fiction books that you can properly sit and read um, and not kind of read one bit and then <laughs> get really bored. So yes, I, I really highly recommend that. Um, it does just put it into into the context that you need. And I think for something that is as complex and as long as the, the story of Chernobyl, um, I really think that, you know, if you're interested in it, it's worth putting the time in to, to read that book. Second, the TV show Chernobyl. Um, so that obviously came out a couple of years ago now. And it is a, a dramatised version of, of the Chernobyl story, but actually a lot of it is correct. And I rewatched it when I was writing this, these, these episodes and, you know, I'd read the book and, and knew a lot about Chernobyl and when I was watching it, so much of it is true. Um, so it really helps to, to kind of show what the process is and, and, and how, what, what went on and how it went on. I did read a couple of articles of, you know, kind of questioning it and saying uh, what it got right and what it got wrong. I 100% don't, you know, it's not going to be a, a totally accurate historical record because um, nothing is if it's if it's that type of dramatised show. Um, and they specifically, things are pointed out that they kind of got the power relationships wrong and you wouldn't have these scientists like running about, like trying to figure things out. And I, and I think that's true. And I think, but I think you can take the, the overarching thing with a grain of salt, um, but but it's still really worth watching because I think it really brings it home what happened and the impact it had. I would say, I mentioned it before, it's like a very long scene because I, I was like, oh, I'll just fast forward it. And then I fast forwarded it. It was still going on um, of of kind of the liquidators coming in and like killing all the animals and stuff, which I found quite horrific. And they do very horrific um, depictions of, of radiation sickness where people kind of like 
just like lose all their skin um which is is reality um so it's is clearly important to show but it is hard watching in some points and yeah the second time the first time around obviously i watched all of it the second time around i did take the liberty to to fast forward parts of it because um yeah it wasn't ideal uh they also do a very long court case which clearly as we've talked about is not really the reality but i do i do recommend watching it even even if just to get a feel for for 1986 ukraine um and to to just get a a kind of flavor of what went on if not the you know detailed accuracy that you might want um and then the third thing i'm going to recommend is um i watched a series on youtube by a guy called scott manley who does like a physicsy science explaining channel and he did a series on chernobyl and it was really good. And there's a uh, one called Why Chernobyl Exploded, How Physics Caused the Explosion. And that like really put all the pieces together for me and in terms of how how it actually happened and how, you know, the rods contributed and the water contributed. And um, hopefully <laughs> the, dis- the, the, the explanation in the last episode made sense. But um, if you want to see it explained in kind of half an hour in a very like nice clip with lots of pictures and animations then i really recommend watching that video uh, i thought it was really good and yes i think they're the main ones that i wanted to highlight but there's so much stuff out there yeah i might have to cut down my, the resources i put in the show notes because i've got so many if, you, if you're interested though there is never-ending things to to read and and watch about it cool so thank you so much for listening please do follow me on instagram i'm at when it goes wrong pod Uh, i'd love to hear from you any feedback or any recommendations for future episodes um i would you could also email me um at i am when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com um i love getting emails i reply to all of them and so yes please do do let me know what you think um otherwise like i said please do rate subscribe or whatever you're on um and please do 